Right, welcome in. Late Kick is live. It is Thursday night, July 30th, the year of our Lord, 2020. There is news breaking all over the place. Some of this will probably be old by the time we go off the air, but nonetheless, happy to have you here. If you haven't already, a quick call to action. Subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. If you're listening to the podcast, you probably already have subscribed there, but if you haven't, go subscribe to the pod as well. We do a lot of fun stuff on Wednesdays that are podcast only, so you'll want to check that out on the uh, Late Kick Extra podcast that we do. Really, really fun stuff there, and we got a lot of fun slash anxious kind of content to talk about on the show tonight. We are going to have rapid reaction to the SEC scheduling news. We don't have a schedule in our hands yet. The ACC was nice enough to at least give us that, so we're going to do rapid reaction to both of those. There were some interesting things that Ed Orgeron had to say about his defense that I was under apparently the misguided notion was pretty good last year. He didn't think so. All they did was win a national championship anyway, so we're going to discuss that. And I've also got Something that I've never talked about on the show. I've never spoken about memorabilia. I'm not a memorabilia guy. I don't collect memorabilia. I mean, I got a few things, but it's definitely not a like a man cave, trophy room, wall-to-wall type memorabilia deal like some of you have. It's impressive when you do have those. I just don't have it. Except that I realized I may have something that's worth more than pretty much any other person that I know has. So I put the challenge out on Twitter earlier today. Give me your most priceless or valuable piece of memorabilia. There have been some good ones so far. I just, I'm going to need someone to uh, give me a price value on what I have that I'll probably never sell. So that before we go off the air, but let's get right into this. A lot's going on. I mean, I'm looking at a computer screen right now in front of me because as we sit here, uh, what time is it? It is 7.02 Central Time on this Thursday evening. We've got a lot going on and we're trying to stay on top of it all. Got a lot of people here at 24-7 chasing a lot of different tales, trying to keep us ahead of this. So here's what we know. The SEC, mid-afternoon today, announces they're going with a 10-game conference-only schedule. That's part A. Part B, we're cranking things up on September 26th instead of the September 4th or 5th uh, proposed start date that you probably saw on your helmet grids that you printed out back in January. There will be bye weeks, according to Commissioner Greg Sankey this afternoon, that will be spread over three weeks somewhere in the middle of the season. So in other words, there's not going to be this one week where everybody's off until, of course, December 12th. And that gets me to the third leg of the biggest takeaways from the announcement today. You'll have staggered bye weeks during the season, but then there's going to be one week on December 12th where no one plays, and that is the end of the season. That's after the last scheduled game, and that's there essentially as a reservoir for all the games that may have to get canceled to spill over into. That's a cushion date that you're putting there that you hope you don't have to use, but the conference championship game is going to be ever so tentatively scheduled for December 19th. Right off the bat, as I was about to come on the air tonight, I saw in our one of our Slack rooms, our recruiting Slack room, Andrew Ivins, who is a recruiting guy that covers pretty much the entire country for us at this point. He said, uh, has anyone looked around and noticed that that is right before early signing day? That conference title game right before early signing day? So you're going to be prepping at the same time as you're trying to lock down your early signing class if nothing changes with those dates. Fun times. All right, so let's dive into this. What are the biggest takeaways? You can tell me what you think in the comment section. I've already heard from a lot of you. I want to drop the P word on you. Maybe not the one you think. Perspective is important here. It always has been, always will be. But it's important here because we don't need to rewind too far. All we need to do is rewind about two or three weeks. Things didn't look so good, did they? Not that we're by any stretch out of the woods right now. 
but things really didn't look good. I was hearing from a lot of you that you thought the season was going to be canceled. You didn't think it was going to happen. So pretend it's three weeks ago. If I were to tell you three weeks ago that we're going to fast forward three weeks later and we're going to have schedules being released, at the very least, it would have made you feel a little warm and fuzzy inside. So just keep that in mind. Let's work off that sentiment and let's work off a warm and fuzzy feeling instead of an ever pessimistic feeling. Biggest questions here. Is the delay smart? There are two schools of thought. Don't really even know which one I reside in. That's why I'm not being paid to make the decisions. But you got some conferences that are going to try and start on time or maybe a week later, uh, like the ACC. And then you got the SEC. It was very clear that the room was divided on when they wanted to start. I've heard a couple, maybe three programs drug their feet on the start date more than others. And eventually, September 26th was just the compromise. One school of thought on this is, okay, well, this lets us have other leagues start and maybe pro sports, pro football starts, and so we can learn from any mistakes they make and then we can be all the wiser when we eventually do crank things up. Of course, the second school of thought is, uh, it's largely thought that some games are going to be canceled. Like it's a, it's a very, very thin line. You're gonna have to, you're gonna have to, what is it called? Thread a pretty small needle, there you go to get all these games off as scheduled. The later you start, the less wiggle room you give yourself. You're telling me that we have one bye week and then one universal bye week before the conference championship game. Is that gonna be enough? Uh, You can't know the answers to these, but obviously the path that they've gone with in the SEC leaves very little wiggle room. Two added conference games. This is the biggest talking point. Uh, This is something that's not sorted out yet. So in summary, Uh, If you missed it earlier today, the league, the SEC announces 10 conference games. That is the schedule. Now, you play eight of them every year. Whether you think it should be nine or ten, whatever the case may be. You play eight every year. Obviously, ten means we're adding two more conference games on. Where are they coming from? Presumably not in your division. I don't think Florida's playing Georgia twice. So it stands to reason you're going to play four teams from over on the other side of the river unless you're Missouri and you already live on the wrong side of the river and you're in the SEC East. But how are you going to decide those other two cross-division games? This has been a point of significant consternation over the past 48 hours since there have been some proposals floated out there. And listen, it's not just the past 48 hours. Our Brandon Marcello has been reporting this for quite a while, that one of the proposals on the table was, if you expand and you go 10 conference games, to just add on whoever your next cross-division opponents would have been using future scheduling. Well, that all sounds well and good, doesn't it? And until you hear the cries out of Gainesville right now, do you hear that? You can hear them yelling at Florida. And here's why. If we were to go with that template, Florida's added two games would be Alabama and Texas A&M. Chief rival in the SEC, East, Georgia's added two games would be Arkansas and Mississippi State. That is a recipe for Florida to beat Georgia and still lose the East. That's probably how that would end up, knowing how this works out like I have seen it work out in the past. So Florida has a problem with that for obvious reasons. So our Brandon Marcello again comes to the table late this afternoon and reports that the SEC sources out of the league office are saying that the scheduling is done and the dates are done. It's just they've got to vote on which of the models they're going to go with. So this is what's happening. There's a computer somewhere in Birmingham, and it's probably just got an Excel spreadsheet open on it. And it's got three or four different options, option A, B, C, and D. And the league, representatives in the league, have to vote on which option they're going to go with. 
Now, you could have the one that's already on the table, which is just we're going to add the teams that you would have played anyway, and so be it. You're just going to have to swallow a very bitter pill or eat cotton candy, depending on which draw you get. But also, there have been some other ideas floated here, and one of them was a strength of schedule that's taken into account, into a model that tries to equally balance out everyone's schedule. Now, you tell me how that works. Tell me how you look at everyone's current eight-game schedule, and then you divide things up evenly where no one gets a tougher break than anyone else. Do you know what that requires? Have you thought about this for a second in the uh, 15 seconds we've had it on the table? That means that someone in the league office is tasked with ranking their teams, not based on a win-loss record like they do at the end of the year. They're having to rank the teams before they've played games. No different than a preseason magazine would. No different than a Vegas odds maker would. Natural question for me is, who's given that responsibility? Who is power ranking SEC teams in the SEC league office? Isn't that fun to speculate wildly about? Because we'd probably never know. Now, those are the two schools I thought about. And there are more than two models, mind you. Uh, there could be three or more. In fact, Brandon Marcello reporting there are more than three models out there, three options for the SEC schedule. So we'll see which one they settle on. Could happen any minute. Could wait till early next week to happen. We really don't know. But the Arkansas athletic director uh, this afternoon saying that Mark Womack, who is an SEC admin, kind of an SEC admin type guy, he's going to be the one tasked with providing that schedule. So if you're sending prayers up this evening, send one up for Mr. Womack in the SEC league office. I had a suggestion that, of course, is not going to be followed through on because no one ever listens to my ideas and someone would have a problem with it, but it would do big numbers in the television world. If you don't want to yell at the schedule maker and blame him and no one wants to just use what would have happened anyway over the next couple of years, we can always go the lottery route. You can put a bunch of ping pong balls in there, and if things don't go your way, you can just blame the balls. Actually, it's not a bad strategy in life. Just blame the balls. And so you could go lottery, and I'm assuming the entire world and portions of the rest of the globe would watch an SEC schedule lottery, but we're not going to go that route. My guess is they're going to go with that power route, that power rating route, that way to decide that tries to balance everyone out. Because if Florida watches that schedule play out, as was speculated and floated wildly uh, the last 48 hours, they would just assume float off into the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic Ocean as actually play that schedule and watch Georgia play the schedule that's been proposed in a year where they legitimately think they can overtake Georgia in the East. Um, trash was the most commonly used adjective to describe that by our Florida fans in the inbox, and I understand it. However, let's just again, before we move on here, let's take time and pause and realize at least in late July, early August, we are talking about the schedule and how it should be formatted instead of what the schedule would have looked like if we, or looked like if we had a season. So every finger remains crossed that we will have a season. The ACC schedule at least in principle, was released yesterday. Now, we don't have dates yet, so we don't know who goes where when, but we do have the ACC schedule out. What we know there is they had a 10 conference games plus, and then just a, a big question mark. Now, it stands to reason 
that what they were trying to do is force the SEC's hand and basically shout to the world, if the SEC wants to play these games like Florida FSU, Kentucky, Louisville, South Carolina, Clemson, Georgia, Georgia Tech, they can do it. Well, the SEC squashed it like a bug on a windshield because they're tired of being second to the party in these announcements. And so it looks like the ACC is probably going with that 10 conference game slate too. Notre Dame is in this thing. Notre Dame, much to the chagrin of many, including some in this building right now, eligible. The Fighting Irish eligible for the ACC championship game, which will be held, by the way, either December 12th or December 19th. The biggest thing that I noticed immediately is, see that, if you're watching on YouTube, over to the right side of this graphic that Colin's showing you that the league office released, they put basically the parameters. And you see December 12th or 19th for the conference championship game. But it's not a two-division format. Since they have 15 teams here, they're just going one division, all 15 teams in the same pot, and we're just taking the best two based off winning percentage of conference games. What does that mean? Well, you know, if, for example, we've got Notre Dame playing Clemson. Well, if they were in the same division, you would have that fear that, okay, Notre Dame may end up being the second best team in this conference by a mile, but since they're parked there behind Clemson, they're not going to be able to play for a conference championship game. Clemson's going to end up being favored by four touchdowns in the conference title game. They may still end up being favored by four TDs, but it's going to be against the true second-best team in the conference, as records indicate, as opposed to what you would have if you had two divisions there. I think that's the way to go this particular year uh, in the ACC. I don't know what the SEC is going to do about that. There are a lot of people on both sides of that fence. Some people think you should maintain the divisions. Some people think that you should go the alternative route. I think the SEC is going to maintain divisions. I think the ACC had a perfect reason not to maintain divisions, and it's going to work out very well for them. Some teams that I was looking at, Notre Dame, obviously. You get a bunch of really good matchups. You get Notre Dame-Clemson, Notre Dame-FSU. So, And I think both of those games are in South Bend. So those are really fun to think about. It's just kind of fun to think about a different world. I don't think this is going to be the new normal, by the way. Notre Dame being in a conference, don't think that's going to be the new normal. But let me tell you the team that popped right off the screen to me was Duke. The Duke Blue Devils want you want to set the scene for you here. You've got calamity, you've got chaos, a million other C words. And so you've got all that happening. And of course, everyone's favorite is Clemson, including myself. And then you've got Notre Dame in the mix. And then you've got the usual questions about, is Miami ready? Is Florida State ready? But then you've got Dave Cutcliffe just sitting at Duke. And he's got Chase Bryce as his transfer quarterback, formerly at Clemson. And you got a really good developer at the quarterback position. And you got a guy who is very capable at quarterback. And it just seems like the kind of world that is tailor-made, custom-made for Dave Cutcliffe to be standing there at the end of the day, finishing well into the top half of this conference. A place that Vegas odds will probably tell you he and Duke have no business finishing in. It just seems like that kind of year. I'm not going to break down Duke's depth chart for you right now, but I'm keeping an eye on Duke. NC State, if you didn't know anything about any of the teams, NC State would be the program that my attention went to the most because NC State, if you look up and down that helmet or that grid schedule that Colin showed you, it's the only program. They're the only one in the entire conference that is able to avoid Clemson and Notre Dame. Doesn't mean their schedule is a cakewalk. Bud Elliott did a really good feature on 247sports.com today about how just because NC State doesn't play, for example, using NC State as the example, just because they don't play uh, the two big boys, they still have Florida State, they still have Miami, still have North Carolina, they still have Virginia Tech, Virginia. So, like, they don't play one and two, but they basically play three, four, five, six. And so it, it, 
ends up that NC State doesn't have the easiest road to hoe. And not to mention, the whole point is we don't know what kind of program they have this year. I saw some people making a little bit of noise about them on Twitter yesterday. Now, the whole point is, um, I mean, there have been some fairly significant internal problems there. There have been some fairly significant roster problems there. Were those rectified overnight and I didn't know about it? So I had to turn in my 1 through 15, <laughs> that was easy, my 1 through 15 uh, order of finish for the ACC today. I did not have NC State in the top half of the conference, despite, at least on the surface, the very workable schedule. Now, I'll tell you who my attention is on the most in terms of needing to prove something, and that's Virginia Tech and Justin Fuente. And they've got their chance. They've got their chance because they've got Clemson, but they've got him at home. They got Miami, but they got him at home. I know that your mind and mine kind of is still trained to think about the home environment as the classic home environment. Well, obviously, that's not going to be the case this year, but at least you don't have to travel in those two circumstances. They come to you. And also, you know, everyone just kind of assumes Clemson is Clemson. Miami is Miami. Well, you don't know. With all the uncertainty out there, you don't know who's going to be on the field any given week. And so, you know, if you have your, if you have your stuff together and, you know, maybe something affects their roster, you, ha- you have no idea what that game looks like come game week. What if they upset Clemson at home? If you take that leap, that's a double-digit underdog situation, but if you take that leap and they're one of the ones that just end up shocking the world this year in a year where I think the world is going to be shocked on a week-to-week basis because of the nature of what we're dealing with right now, they do that? They get Miami at home? What if all of a sudden Justin Fuente, in the most uncertain of times, takes a program that everyone is uncertain about, and this is the year that they go bang? Virginia Tech's one that I'm looking at because elsewhere... They got a trip to North Carolina. They got Louisville at home. They got Duke at home. Like, they're not with the easiest. They're not with the hardest, but they're right there to where if there's going to be a year and if there's going to be someone come out of the blue, aside from Duke, who I already told you about blue, Duke, you got that. Uh, Virginia Tech is another one that I'm looking at. So, just some thoughts there on the ACC. Uh, schedule release. We'll get dates on that eventually. And there's a lot more. We did a ton about that yesterday on 247sports.com. One of the benefits of being the league office that put out the schedule first. You get a a disproportionate amount of coverage on your conference. So now I want to go down south to Baton Rouge. Hadn't talked about LSU in a couple of weeks. So Ed Orgeron, I think he was speaking at a Rotary Club event yesterday, day before yesterday. And as usual, when Ed Orgeron speaks, he says a whole lot, and a lot of it was noteworthy. He, he's not one for coach speak. And so there's perception versus reality here that I want to use to frame this next couple of minutes of this show. Perception last year with LSU, around this time last year, LSU had been uh, stuck in the 1940s offensively forever, since the 1940s, it seemed. And the perception was... I don't care how excited they are down there. There's no way that with the same quarterback and a lot of the same offensive pieces that just got shut out at home by Alabama the year before, there's no way that they're just going to revolutionize everything and the mere hiring of a position coach from the New Orleans Saints is going to be the one lighter into the... uh, bucket of fluid and everything goes boom. That's not going to happen. That was perception. Reality was it happened. Every bit of that happened and then some. Everything LSU folks thought in their wildest dreams, the best of best case scenarios, came to came to fruition. So there was a, there was a gap between reality and perception. Well, this year, 
we look on the other side of the ball, and you got defense that I didn't think was half bad last year. I mean, it, it wasn't vintage, but it didn't need to be. But this year, LSU's defense, you got Dave Aranda, who wasn't fired. He goes on to take a head coaching job at Baylor. I mean, that's, that's a promotion in pretty much anyone's book. So Dave Aranda was being paid ungodly amounts of money. Good for him, by the way, but, but incredible money as a coordinator. And he moves on, and Bo Pelini now comes in, and he was there, uh, aside from last year, the last time they won a national championship. That's been a long time. I mean, back then you were defending John Parker Wilson and Terry Grant. Now you've got a world of Tua Tonga-Vailoa or Bryce Young or Mac Jones and half a dozen first-round draft picks at wide receiver. It's a different conference. Perception is they're not going to come in and be a dominant defense. I mean, they're, what, what are they going to do? You can't be dominant offensively and defensively. That's just what the book says. Well, that's where the perception is right now. And that's as far as we can go. We can't get to reality yet. That's what the season will provide us. But these were some quotes from head coach of LSU, Ed Orgeron, yesterday at that little uh, Rotary Club event. We didn't play good defense last year. That's why Bo Pelini is here. Now we'll be able to use our athletes and play better defense. Too many points scored on us last year. You're going to see big improvement. So I defended LSU's defense, especially second half of the year last year. thought a lot of their issues were not necessarily personnel or scheme related. They were just missing a lot of key components that they ended up getting back. And secondly, I think we'd all agree that offense bought them a lot of leeway, let them take a lot of chances. Now, I don't think that the locals think that you took enough chances, uh, up to and including the head coach of the team, Ed Orgeron. So part of culture, a word that is overutilized as just something to fill in a blank, but underutilized by people who actually understand it. Part of culture is identity and fit. And I think what's being suggested, you don't need to read too far between the lines here, what's being suggested is you can have two things that are true at once. Uh, Dave Aranda could be a heck of a defensive coach. He could be one of the best defensive minds in the game. He could be a good enough football mind to be hired as a Power 5 head coach. All those things have happened. Those things can be true, but it can also be true that for whatever reason or list of reasons, he just wasn't the best fit for an Ed Orgeron-led program. So maybe both of those things were true here, and he didn't necessarily mesh his vision with Orgeron's. So they flip things from a 3-4 to a 4-3. This is stuff that I think is overblown too. To be honest with you, We've had a lot of questions about uh, LSU flipping from the 3-4 to the 4-3 in the Late Kick uh, Extra podcast inbox where we take questions. It's all a mailbag. Subscribe, by the way, to the podcast if you haven't already, and give us a five-star review. We're approaching 400, and we eventually want to get to 1,000. So anyway, back on point here, a lot of our LSU brethren have asked, hey, what do you think about us moving to the 4-3? Well, really, it matters to me most in recruiting doesn't matter schematically. I mean, if you look at the front you're in when you face teams like Alabama, since we're looking at footage of last year's game on the uh, YouTube live feed here, that's the personnel package that they dictate you be in anyway. And so I don't care about it so much there. Where I care about it is I know what opposing staffs do to anyone out there who officially runs a 3-4. They go into the home of every defensive end and outside linebacker, edge rushing type, and they say, you go play for a 3-4 defense and you're just going to be a clogger and you're not going to fill your stat sheet up and you've got the build to be an elite 
future first round type edge rusher, but you're going to throw all that potential away down there and you're going to throw away potential first round money. And yeah, maybe you'll still go pro and maybe you'll play in the NFL, but you won't get that big fat rookie contract that you would have gotten if you came here and played in a traditional four man front. So now LSU doesn't have to worry about that anymore. I don't know how much it was affecting them. I just know in the past that that's been an issue that people who run a 3-4 officially deal with. But now the second place that it matters is it matters in style. And if you'll listen to Ed Orgeron, I didn't give you his entire speech. I just gave you quotes. He went on to say that he really prefers a more attacking style. And what you get to do when you have the kind of offense implemented that LSU has, and that's kind of the side question, do they continue on the same general trajectory offensively this year that they did last year? Don't have to match the numbers, just general style. I mean, are they still a legitimate threat to be a top 10, top 5 offensive caliber product? If the answer is yes there, you don't have to have a suffocating product defensively. I don't think that's what Ed Orderon is asking for here. I actually think he probably prefers a swarming style over a suffocating style, knowing we arrive at the stadium with the pretty good idea that we're putting up 30 or 40 against most teams. So we know that we can take risks here. We know we can take chances that we couldn't when it was a struggle to get 20. So let me ask you something. I'm going to ask you a question, but you're not going to get all the information you need to answer it. My question is, would you rather give up 14 points a game on average or 17 points a game? Naturally, you go 14. But what if I told you the part B there is if you give up 17 points a game, you get the kind of offense that the big boys run. You give up 14, you get a snail offense. Which one would you rather have? I think Ed Orgeron sitting here saying, listen, I'm not sitting here telling you just take risk after risk and, and let folks go up and down the field on us, but I think he is saying we're going to load this roster up with guys who can harass the quarterback, and I don't need you to pitch shutouts. I don't need you to hold folks in the single digits. We are not what we used to be. We are now a modernized version of LSU football now and will be moving forward as long as I'm here. You take your risks because I think it's going to pay off, and I think that for every couple more points on average per game we may give up, I think you're going to turn the ball over, and I think you're going to give us a lot more fortuitous field position, and it's worth it. And that is the gamble that they're making that he thinks is going to pay off. And we wrap it right back around to that perception versus reality. This time last year, he was adamant about that offense. Adamant. He is just as adamant when you hear him talk about this defense this year. So I didn't doubt him offensively last year. That's why a lot of LSU folks loved this program last year, but a lot of people did. I would caution you, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, what does that make you? So I would, at the very least, give reasonable doubt and deference to what Ed Orgeron's saying about his team, as opposed to maybe what you think about his team and what is and isn't possible. All right, let's wrap it up with this. Um, as I told you, I am not a big memorabilia guy. I just don't collect a lot of things. Uh, and that goes up to and including today. But I have something. I didn't really realize that I had it. Didn't ever look at it as memorabilia until I was rummaging around through my stuff last time I was at home in Columbus. And I realized, you know what? Uh, I need to talk about this. So we haven't done an all-access story in about a month. And a lot of you hit me up, a couple of you in particular, every week and say, when is the next all-access story? Well, it's tonight, right now, as a matter of fact. The all-access stories are just... That's exactly what they are, behind-the-scenes stories from covering games. So let me take you back to 2017. I'm in Columbus, Georgia. I'm working at WLTZ NBC 38. That is the local NBC affiliate there. It was a golden era 
to say the least, to be covering college football in that market. You're covering Georgia, you're covering Auburn, and you're covering Alabama uh, and the uh, CSU Cougars club football team. So Cougars to the side, you're talking about Georgia, Bama, and Auburn. And think about what 2017 did. When I say golden era, you have the Gus Malzahn fiasco, soap opera, whatever you want to call it, and you have them go to LSU and lose, and everyone thinks he's going to be fired, and then they come back home five weeks later, and he beats number one Georgia, and he beats number one Alabama, and so all of this is happening right in our backyard. Auburn goes to Atlanta, but not before Malzahn and his representation push Auburn up against a wall and say, give us a new deal, and they verbally agree to it, and then they go uh, get beat in the SEC championship game where Georgia atones for their loss, and so Georgia's going to the playoffs. And Alabama gets to go to the playoffs, too. Best case scenario for anyone who is covering college football in Columbus, Georgia. So half of the college football playoff is made up of teams that we cover. So Georgia goes out to the Rose Bowl. They win that classic in overtime. I'm sitting in the press box in the New Orleans Superdome. I'm watching that game because we've got Bama versus Clemson in the Sugar Bowl, a rematch of last year's title game. Alabama wins that one, which sets up the absolute dream scenario you could work in Columbus, Georgia 500 years. How often are you going to have two of your local teams playing a national championship game in your backyard in Atlanta, Georgia? You got Auburn, you got over there who has had an incredible season and ups and downs all over the place. Then you got Georgia and Alabama go to the playoff and they're playing in the national championship game in Atlanta. So easily the high water mark of my admittedly fairly young career was that season and then that night but that doesn't have anything to do with memorabilia. Here's where the whole memorabilia angle comes into question. We're standing on the sideline. It's overtime. Tua gets sacked. The second and like Ackworth, Georgia to go. And then second and 26 happens. And Devontae Smith catches the ball right across the field from me. And so it's chaos. It's total bedlam. Your mind can't process fully what's happening. And so we're on the field. This is actually, Colin is rolling the footage that I just pulled out the iPhone and started shooting. Didn't even have a camera in my hand at the moment. And so all this is happening. Just absolute mayhem. And it's that way. It's like when you're riding a roller coaster and you're going down the first big hill. It's kind of that feeling, but it's for about 10 minutes. And you just don't really know what to do. And you're trying to absorb it. And you're trying to take it all in. And so I also got buddies back home that if I go to these games, they ask, hey, like if my team wins, can you get me some confetti? Can you get me some of those newspapers, the, you know, the commemorative newspapers they pass around? You can never get the t-shirts or the hats. So I'm walking around knowing full well that I got to hightail it to the Georgia locker room because I have to gather sound. I got I to get into both of them because we cover both teams. So I'm, I'm looking for newspapers and I can't find any. But I see something else on the ground and I pick it up and I'm putting it in my backpack and I'll just sort it out later. So I go into the Georgia locker room. Um, some of the most impressive stuff you'll ever see. Uh, those guys just having their absolute heart ripped out of their chest, manning up, looking you dead in your eyes, and doing as many interview minutes as you need them to do. So it was impressive just on the surface, being in the Georgia locker room and being around a lot of guys that I don't think people appreciated how hard it was going to be to replace, to be honest with you. You just assume, hey, recruiting, we're recruiting five-star guys, so it'll be easy. No. Now, I would argue you still hadn't replaced some of those guys. But anyway, so then we get back over to the Bama locker room. We get sound out of the Alabama locker room, press conferences and whatnot. Two hours go by. I only have like an hour's drive home, so we didn't leave there until way late in the night. And we're doing stand-up stuff on the field afterwards. And so I, I dig in my bag to find something. 
And I remember, oh, there's this thing that I picked up on the field. Let me see what that was. It's the play sheet for Brian Dable, who is the current offensive coordinator at Alabama. And it is the offensive play sheet, front and back, including that very memorable Seattle play. There are many audibles on the back of this thing. For the second and 26 game-winning, national championship-winning touchdown from Tonga Vailoa to uh, Devontae Smith. Now, I asked some dude who is big in the memorabilia world months later, hey, uh, you know what I got? And I told him. And he, I think he may actually be a Bama guy. Um, he had to sit down for a second, start fanning himself, essentially, and gives me some number that, to be honest with you, I don't believe, but he gives me some number that that would be worth. Now, you will have to pry this out of my cold, dead hands. I'm not giving this thing away. I'm not selling it. In fact, if anyone at the University of Alabama or wherever Brian Dable is today is watching, it's probably in about the safest hands that it could possibly be. But I didn't even look at it as memorabilia. You know, to me, memorabilia is like a signed helmet or a signed football maybe a bag of confetti. You know, I remember the first first time we went to a championship game, uh, Clemson, well, it wasn't the first one, but when Clemson first won their title game, I, I had guys offering me money to get them bags of confetti. That's, that's garbage. You know that, right? That's just cut up garbage paper that's colored. But nonetheless, it was important. So you never know what kind of price someone puts on something. But here's what I can promise you. There is only one of these play sheets out there, and there's only one time you're ever going to walk someone off second and 26 in the national championship game, and that is the sheet that the play came off of. Listen to that laminate. And it sits right here in my hand, and I was fanning myself in the control room beforehand because it makes a good substitute as a fan. But yeah, that's my best piece of memorabilia, and in a lot of ways, one of the only pieces of memorabilia. I got that, and I got a box full of like dozens and dozens of credentials from games, with the final scores written on the back of them, that is the extent of my memorabilia collection. But I thought a lot of you would enjoy that because I, um, I haven't heard a story quite like that one. Now, to your credit, I put it out on Twitter earlier today, give me your best piece of memorabilia. One of you got engaged at the 50-yard line in Knoxville at Neyland Stadium. That was a really good one. Our buddy Sean Fox from down in Louisiana had a program from the funeral of the late Eddie Robinson that's pretty impressive, and I haven't even been able to update. I have right now 37 notifications on Twitter. So I'm assuming someone may have topped me, but I think I got at least 95% of you beat. So I really appreciate you guys tuning in tonight. We have a very active chat. Uh, if you haven't already, few of you haven't, subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel. Also, click the bell for notifications. Going to be more and more important as more and more news breaks and news breaking season. Clicking that bell to get notifications is the best way to be alerted when something is happening on this channel. For Director Colin, for Tani, for Aaron, I'm Josh Pate. Have a great rest of your week. Have a great early start to your weekend. Stay safe, do what you need to do, and God bless.